This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. How do you find a new way forward when suddenly you have to, ready or not? Maybe you're relocating or having your first baby or leaving a relationship. Just starting or just starting over. On the road to somewhere, we talk about all of it, getting really honest. And we definitely laugh our way through it. That's the beauty of this journey. I'm Lisa Oz. And I'm Jill Herzig. Join us as we navigate our own big life changes on our podcast, The Road to Somewhere. Listen to The Road to Somewhere on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Katie Lambert. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And if you're in the United States, you're getting ready to celebrate Thanksgiving. I'm really excited about all the eating. I'm not going to lie. And the two days off work. Right. Um, but when you were in elementary school, you probably learned a pretty picturesque story about the first Thanksgiving. You might have even dressed up as a pilgrim or a Native American, put some buckles on your shoes or a feather in your cap and celebrated a, a big feast with your class. Well, actually, I've got to go off on a, a brief family tangent there. My eight-year-old brother, Stephen, learned about Thanksgiving last year, you know, in his class, and he came home with a very graphic placemat that he'd made for my mother, <laughs> Lucky Mom, that's these pilgrims violently, you know, shooting all these turkeys, and there's a lot of blood. <laughs> so, Stephen, you know, how you feel about Thanksgiving? And he gave us the whole story. And after that day, he's never eaten turkey. So when we give him his dinner at Thanksgiving, we just tell him it's chicken. And so far, he hasn't caught on to the fact that it comes from the same plate as the turkey. So Stephen, if you hear this podcast in a few years, I'm really sorry. (laughs) Well, one thing Stephen can be happy about is that the turkey which was the focal point of his drawing, apparently, is a vital part of this myth. It's not something that's made up. So at least that much of this idealized Thanksgiving story is true, even though plenty of it is not. So let's start with some of the real story's background. In 1607, British Protestants break from the Church of England and they sail to Holland, where they're a little more religiously tolerant because Spain and the Spanish Catholics have been harassing them for so long. And they stay there for 12 years until they run out of money, and then they get a nice offer from English merchants who will give them money to sail to the New World and uh, settle down, start a, a little town. 
which they do, of course, they sail on the Mayflower, a cargo ship used in the wine trade. And there were either 101 or 102 of them. We keep finding different numbers. We thought there was a baby born. Yeah, we're wondering if That's number 102 was a baby. Mayflower history. But uh, they're aiming for near Virginia, but they end up in Cape Cod because of winds. And we were saying what a sad... <laughs> Sad course change that would be if you were arriving the winter and in New England, and so, half of them die yeah. in this New England winter. So again, not a fortuitous change of course. But the settlers who make it through the winter set up a pretty comfortable place in the Plymouth Colony, which is in Massachusetts, and they're actually not pilgrims. That's our first. Point of the, yeah, we're going to debunk that. They're not pilgrims because the term pilgrim lumps together separatists and non-separatists. Uh, so we're just going to call them settlers, if that's right. okay with everybody. And um, we can even go further, and they call themselves first comers, which is a little misleading, too. That kind of makes it sound like they're the first people, uh, first Till European end. people settling in what will be the United States. And of course, they're not. First, we yeah. had the Roanoke colony. And then second, we had the Jamestown colony, which Sarah and I discuss in our Pocahontas podcast. Yeah. So the first comers is really just marking the beginning of a wave of subsequent settlers arriving through the 1620s. And Plymouth is an okay place to live if you're one of the people who makes it through the winter. Sounds better than very early Jamestown. Sounds a lot better than Jamestown. They have seven houses, there's a meeting house, and there are some structures for food and storage. But they're still kind of desperate for supplies, and they pilfer from uh, the nearby Native Americans, the Wampanoags, who have been in the region for 12,000 years. So the Wampanoags are not particularly impressed with the settlers, initially at least. But a Wampanoag named Squanto, who you've probably heard of, and an Abenaki named Samoset are very friendly, and they show the settlers how to harvest corn and fertilize crops with fish, which are valuable skills to have in the New World. And this starts the beginning of a pretty friendly relation between the Wampanoag and the settlers. They make an alliance by March of 1621, um, offering each other protection from other tribes in the area. The Wampanoags teaching the settlers fishing, hunting, and farming um, tailored to the seasons. That was an important thing for them to learn to roll with how the the year progressed. And this is a, a nice thing that's in line with the myth, the idea that the Settlers and the Native Americans could be friends. Yeah, it's it's in line with the elementary school story. And then it's weirdly out of line with uh, what you're more likely to learn in high school or something where the you, you sort of imagine the settlers and the Native Americans clashing Massacres. right from the start until... Um, until the end, basically. But for this first generation, at least, and we should say this does, this peace between them does not last long, but for a generation, it's there. So after a successful spring and summer of trying out these new farming techniques that they've learned, the settlers decide to have a harvest celebration in the fall of 1621, and they're going to go out and hunt wild game and make a big feast for everyone. But the Wampanoag leader, Massasoit, thinks that the gunfire means war and takes 90 men 
to the settlers to get an explanation. <laughs> what were you doing shooting in the woods the other day? And when you have 90 people behind you, there had better be a good explanation. And oh. so they say, you yeah, know, we're hunting, hunting for a feast. And then uh, once once they get that explanation, the uh, Native Americans are like, okay, well, we'll hunt for a feast too, and we'll all have one together. So this Thanksgiving meal is a bit different from what you and I would have. For one thing, it started, it went from about, what, three days to a week? Yeah, different accounts put it between a week and three days. And there were 90 Wampanoags and 53 settlers, which even with my huge Catholic family, we don't quite measure up. <laughs> and the food they have is also a little different. They had turkey, Indian corn, pumpkin, which makes sense. Those sound pretty standard. Right. Chestnuts. Eels. Eels. <laughs> I, my family does not have eel for Thanksgiving most years. <laughs> Mine also doesn't have swans, seals, cranes, eagles, or corn porridge. Uh, goose, duck, those, those sound okay. Venison, onions, radishes, plums, parsnips, leeks, dried currants. It kind of gets good again towards the end of that list. There's just a, an odd interlude. The eel part. Maybe between eel and eagle. <laughs> But um, the settlers would have seasoned their meat with cinnamon and ginger and nutmeg sauces and pepper and dried fruit. So it sounds kind of tasty. It sounds delicious. For the most part. <laughs> they didn't have forks, so this is not quite medieval times, because they did have spoons and knives and big napkins that they used to grab the hot food. And they ate whatever was in front of them, which, There was you know, no passing. <laughs> whose mother wouldn't be proud of that. And the highest people, the people who were highest in the hierarchy, got the best food. So maybe if you really liked somebody and you were kind of high up, you could send a dish down to them. Maybe some eel. Yeah. Pass the eel, please. And there was entertainment as well. It wasn't all just gluttony. They played blind man's bluff and a pin game for the kids. There was target shooting for the adults, dancing and singing. So altogether, it really sounds like a lovely time. And the Native Americans probably would have had to establish their own lodging, too, because they lived... A, a ways outside of the settlement. So everyone's just hanging out for days, eating and having fun. And some of the illustrious people who would have been there were um, Massasoit, Squanto, Governor William Bradford, Captain Miles Standish, and William Brewster, who was the religious leader. So they'd be the guys who'd get the really good dishes set in front of them. And Sarah said this to me earlier. She's like, oh, you know, it's like having a celebrity at dinner, like Squanto, and she points. And I didn't even think about it and just turned around. Did he look into the other department I was pointing at? And I have to live <laughs> with that. Most of our information about this feast in 1621 comes from Edward Winslow's A Journal of the Pilgrims at Plymouth. And again, we're not using the term pilgrim, but he can if he wants to. But while this was certainly a monumental feast, and this is what we're um, essentially celebrating when we celebrate Thanksgiving, wasn't really the first religious Thanksgiving. That happened in Plymouth two years later in 1623, following a two-month drought. And where this all got kind of mixed up was with the writer-editor Sarah Josepha Hale, who edited the Godey's Ladies book and also authored Mary Had a Little Lamb, interestingly. A enough. woman of many literary talents. But she thought that the 1621 feast was Thanksgiving. 
But it's understandable why she mixed things up a little bit, because what we celebrate today is a combination of two distinct celebrations, this religious Thanksgiving and also a harvest ritual where you, you know, celebrate abundance. Yeah. And we also have another Thanksgiving, um, the religious Thanksgiving, on record that's earlier than both of these. And that's 1619, when the British settlers under Captain John Woodleaf celebrated their safe passing um, in the Berkeley Plantation in Virginia near the Charles River. So that just one... Just to further muddy what the waters a little yeah, bit for we you. just have a lot of early celebrations to go along and balance the starving time and... The, <laughs> All those other wonderful relics of settlement. (laughs) It was Abraham Lincoln who gave us, and by us, I mean the United States, our national holiday for the last Thursday of every November. So happy Thanksgiving. Gobble, gobble, y'all. And if you'd like to learn more about this first Thanksgiving and all sorts of interesting facts about turkeys, you can go and search for everything you wanted to know about the first Thanksgiving on our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And be sure to check out the Stuff You Missed in History Class blog on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. The Only Way is Through, a new podcast in partnership with iHeartRadio and Under Armour. Players, coaches, and athletes will share intimate and personal stories of performing at the highest level. Here is Canadian heptathlete Georgia Ellenwood. The reason I won is because on that day I was confident. I need to continue that mentality to understand that I can be an Olympic athlete. I can compete with the best in the world and just perform. Listen to The Only Way is Through, available now on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi guys, my name is Sammy J. I've been working as a correspondent and interviewer since I was 13. And now at 17, I am so honored to be the youngest person to have her own podcast on iHeartRadio. It's called Let's Be Real with Sammy J. We'll have in-depth and unfiltered conversations with celebrities, activists, athletes, and influencers. We'll cover topics we're curious about, topics my guests are passionate about, and topics many of us are just too afraid to talk about. I get past the fluff to what's real. We go there, and it's fun, pretty crazy, and very revealing. Listen to Let's Be Real with Sammy J on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.